Are we ready for the word tonight? Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's go in our Bible to the Gospel of John chapter 10. I'd like to teach on the power of Scripture. The power of Scripture. And in John chapter 10, I want to begin reading with verse 31. And I will read through 36. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy. And because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, Ye are gods? If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said I am the Son of God. So let's have a word of prayer as we look into this. Father, we are happy again to be able to break the bread of life and minister this word to your people we pray that you give them ears to hear, help me to be able to teach and to clarify whatever may be complex so that we'll have a greater understanding of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, the phrase that says the scripture cannot be broken simply means the scripture can't fail, the scripture can't be set aside. That means when you're looking into God's word, you will not find uh, places where is that the wind doing that? Yeah, just pull that up for me. Yeah. You will not find places where there's error and wherever it looks like there's all kinds of contradictions or something like that, then you will find that just a little bit of reconciling of the verses of Scripture will pull it all together. But I want us now to go to Psalm 82 because I want to work on the part where Jesus said to them, does not the scripture say all of you are gods? So what is Jesus alluding to here in Psalm 82? There'll be a number of verses that we're going to have to look at this evening. Psalm 82, look at verse 1. Elohim, that means God, stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. Now, the first word of verse 1 in the Hebrew is Elohim. The last word of that verse also is the word Elohim. The word Elohim is a Hebrew word that in the plural means gods. El is the singular form of that word. Now, when it says he judgeth among the gods and then goes on to say, how long will you judge unjustly? I want you to understand that the word gods here is not signifying deities that the Lord believes exists. We already know from the Ten Commandments, the Lord says you will have no other God before me or in my presence. So for the ancient readers of Hebrew, they also knew that just like in English, a word can have dual meanings. It doesn't necessarily just have to mean someone divine, but it can also refer to officials or people in authority. Now, where do we find this? If we go now to 
Exodus chapter 12, then I'll show it to you, and then we'll go back to Psalm 82. Exodus 12, and the translators were very perceptive, and they paid attention to the nuance of these verses, but notice Exodus 12, verse 11. And here's how you shall eat it. With your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste, for it is the Lord's Passover. So he's telling them about how to handle the the lamb that'll be slain. Verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now, in verse 12, if you, in, in a good Bible, in a very good Bible, you're going to have center column reference, and you're going to see where it says gods or princes. Gods or princes. So the ancient Jews understood that in certain contexts, the word Elohim can refer to officials or princes or royal figures who are in a position to pass judgment. When we come back now to Psalm 82, you can understand now why after verse 1, he goes into verse 2 and says, how long will you judge unjustly? God is saying he's going to stand in in the midst of the mighty people, people who've been given authority, people who stand in a position as God to judge other people's affairs. Remember how the Lord said of Moses that to the Egyptians, you're going to be God and Aaron's going to be your prophet. See, he spoke that to him. Now then, this is what Jesus begins to allude to in verse six. He says, I have said ye, which is English plural form of you. All of you are gods and all of you are children of the most high. This is the verse Jesus just quoted in John 10. So Jesus is telling the Israelites, why is it that you are offended at me because I'm saying I'm God's son? Doesn't the scripture itself call all of you gods? And so he says, you should not be angry at me that I say I'm the son of God or God's son. He said, well, what is he doing? He's still quoting here verse number six, because where it says you are the children of of the Most High. In the Hebrew, the word children is the plural form of sons. You are the sons of the Most High. And sometimes a word can refer to both genders or can refer to the greater part of the people. So when the Bible says those that are led by the Spirit, they're the sons of God. They're the children of God. He's not just talking about men he's talking about women also when we use the word brethren we're not just talking about brothers we're talking about women also in the body of christ brethren in the community of christianity so then if we look at john 10 again and consider the context jesus was basically letting them know you're saying that i'm blaspheming when in fact i'm very scriptural and the scriptural cannot fail Scripture cannot fail. He's not misinterpreting it. They have misunderstood the scripture. And this happens all the time with Jesus and the Jewish people. They think they have trapped him in his language. And here he is 
properly explaining to them the word of God. So that is an intro is what I'm looking at here tonight when we talk about scriptures, scriptures being holy, scriptures being powerful, scriptures being the things that teach us. Let's go to Numbers 21. That's the fourth book of your Bible. Numbers 21. I believe this is my chapter. And if it's not, then I'm just going to quote another one. Let me see. This doesn't look like my verse, and somehow I have lost it, but I can quote it for you here. And maybe I'm, let me make sure I'm not Exodus real fast. It doesn't take but a second to go over here and look. But i tell you what my verse is, though. I'm almost certain it's numbers. Where God says, God is not a man that he should lie nor the son of man that he should repent. If he has spoken it, of course, that has to come to pass. Now, the reason I wanted to to, to bring that verse out is because that speaks to the character of God. If we believe God's scripture was inspired by him and that he, by his Holy Spirit, used people to write the word of God, 23, 2319, Numbers 2319. So I, this way you can see it for yourself. 2319, you can see it for yourself. There it is. God's not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, shall he not make it good? That gives you in a nutshell the character of God. God does not lie. God never has to say he's sorry. He's done nothing for which he needs to apologize So when we look at the scripture, I want you to understand this is the word of God that is his divine revelation. This is a special revelation that has come from the beginning, recorded by holy men of God as they spake, being moved by the Holy Spirit. And this word has been preserved so that you have everything that you need in order to live a holy life. And the scripture makes it very plain that that the Bible contains everything you need to live according to godliness. And if God could preserve his word, he can preserve you. He can preserve me. He preserved the Jewish people despite all of the persecution that came to them. He has preserved Christians, the church, despite the persecution that has come to it. He has preserved his word in ancient and holy texts, despite the fact many people have tried to change God's word by using newer texts and other texts. So God's scripture then is unchanging because his word is pure, the Bible says. Let's go to Romans 15. Romans 15 in the New Testament. And I want us to look now at verse number four. We're talking about the power of Scripture, its ability to influence life and to lead and guide us, to direct our steps, to shape our temperament and our faith. Romans 15 verse 4, for whatsoever things were written before time were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. 
According to verse 4, everything that is inscribed and preserved and kept and transmitted has been kept and preserved so that we can learn from it. And the only way you can learn from Scripture, you have to approach Scripture with the idea, my heart, my mind has to be submitted to what God has placed in his book. And whenever my thoughts and ideas conflict with or contradict his word, if it's true submission, then I've got to bring my thoughts in line with God's word. That's what learning is all about. Learning is not about a Christian arguing with God saying, well, I don't like this particular verse and I don't like that particular book and I don't like that particular event that God was involved with. And I had somebody tell me that one time. They say, I don't like the God of the Old Testament. I only like Jesus in the gospel. I said, well, you've got a problem with the whole Bible because Jesus is the one that said, when you read the law, the writings, the Psalms, they testify of me. And he's the one that also helped write the Old Testament. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. It wasn't one person sitting down. It's the triune Godhead involved with all of this. And the scripture says here plainly, these things in the past were written so that we can learn. God does not want us to be ignorant. And the best way to counter ignorance is with wisdom, understanding. And the person who approaches God's word and has no desire to learn, that person is a fool. And the Bible says the fool has said in his heart there is no God. The man or woman who believes he or she is smarter than God is not going to approach the scriptures to learn. They'll read the Bible the same way they read any other secular book and they'll say there's no difference at all. There is a difference. This book converts the soul, the psalmist said. This word is clean and pure. It's a fountain of life, the scripture teaches. And when people read this and then conform their, their life to it, things change. Now, back in 1790, there was an English vessel named the Bounty. And it had all of these officers and it had a crew of about nine people who, who mutinied against the captain and the officers. And they kicked the captain and his officers off the boat and set them adrift in the ocean. And there were the nine people who mutinied. There were six Tahitian men and 12 Tahitian women. And they set sail for an island that had been discovered 23 years prior, an island called Pitcairn. And this island was uninhabited. So they, they sailed there and made their way there, got there safely. And with the, the, the leaves and the vegetation that was there, they learned how to make alcohol. I'm talking drink, you know, stuff they could imbibe. And they figured out how to distill alcohol from some of the leaves there. And pretty soon, this small group of people, you started having drunkenness. You had all kinds of wickedness, wild uh, sexual escapades, brutality, and all kinds of things that broke out because of that. And it was so bad that of the nine men that mutinied, only one was left. They'd killed, they started killing the men off because of what they were doing when they were drinking. But this, this one man, he, he was going through one of the old chests that one of the dead men had, and going through it, he found a Bible. And he pulled that Bible out and read it, became convicted by what he was reading, 
changed his life. And with the, the Tahitian men and the Tahitian women that were there and all of the offspring that had been born and were now in the process of being raised up, he started teaching them the Bible. And years later, 1808, when some people finally made their way there on another vessel and happened to stop on that island, they found an island filled with people that loved Jesus. All because somebody discovered a Bible. Imagine how many homes in America were changed when a husband or a mom became a Christian. Imagine how many schools were changed or communities were changed when somebody became a Christian. The Bible says in verse 4, these things were written for our learning and the learning never stops. Every time you open the Bible, it's classroom time. Now, also, you can see where it talks about patience. Another word for patience is endurance. We can talk about some forms of long-suffering, but being able to just continue and be persistent, that's what it means to be patient. But look at verse 5. The God of patience and consolation grants you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus. So the God of patience can produce patience in you and in me. Anybody in here could use a little more patience? I know I, I know I could, yeah, yeah. All of us could use a little more patience. If you've ever been waiting for something in the mail, then you go to the mailbox just about every day wondering when the mailman's going to get there. You, you don't want to see him standing ten houses up the road talking to Mrs. Richardson. You just want him to just get right on the road, come on down that sidewalk and bring me what I'm looking for. Uh, some of you might be the kind that when you put something in the microwave for about 37 seconds, you stand and shout at the microwave because it's taking too long. So patience is something we all could use. And the scripture even tells us in Hebrews, we inherit the promises of God through faith and patience. The ability to wait. And that's not something Christians are good at. We don't say it like the children do in the car but God sees it in our heart as the same way when the little kid's on the trip and they're saying over and over again, how much further are we there yet? And when you start praying and you're asking God to do this or to do that, God can see down in your heart whether or not you truly are patient, whether you're somebody that's trying to hurry him along. But you know as well as I do that throwing a tantrum doesn't move God any faster, does it? There have been a whole lot of people got mad at God and said, well, I just don't understand why you're not doing this for me. And if you and if you don't do this for me, then I'm never going to church again. Then you just never go to church again because you can't twist God's arm that way. Well, the scripture says in verse four, patience and comfort of the scriptures. That's a very important statement. The scriptures can provide you comfort when you're passing through a very difficult time. Scriptures can heal the broken heart. That's what Jesus is able to do, and the scriptures can help you. I have found that when people are going through a very difficult period of life, something tragic may have happened or just something that's not good is going on, I have found that there are certain statements that don't work very well. And one of them is, I know how you feel. 
but the therapy people say that quite often. And, you know, to, to their credit, they're making the statement trying to show sympathy. You know, they're, they're not trying to be mean. They're not just giving a whole lot of thought to, to what they're saying. Or when, when somebody just lost a loved one or maybe somebody lost a job or something like that, having difficulties, and somebody comes along, puts their arm around you, and they say, well, you know, God's ways are best. Well, that, that doesn't necessarily encourage somebody when, when they've just buried a teenager, you see. Number one, uh, that may not have been God's way anyway, you see. And, and, then, and then secondly, according to verse number four, the comfort that a person is going to find is in the scriptures. So just through the years in having to walk with people through different kinds of valleys and different kinds of trials, I have found that the answer is not to try to compare problems in my life with problems in their life to help them feel like we're all, we, we've all experienced the exact same thing. It's not. But use the scripture. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's the word of God that's anointed. It's the word of God that is powerful, and that's where the comfort will come from. Tell somebody a story from the Gospels about how Jesus handled someone. So somebody's struggling with forgiveness, and they feel like they've committed a sin and the Lord won't forgive them. Tell them the story about how Jesus dealt with the woman who was known for her sins, and she was too embarrassed to even really look up into his face, but was bathing his feet with her tears. And then Jesus said, this woman whose sins are many, her sins are forgiven. That's what people need to hear. They don't just need to hear another story of someone else who had sins that were worse than theirs, or something like that. The scriptures are powerful and they provide for us an opportunity to learn and an opportunity to have patience. Now, let's go to 2 Timothy now. 2 Timothy. All kind of windy out there tonight, doesn't it? 2 Timothy, chapter number 3. And Father, we just thank you for keeping the winds from blowing this building down and causing problems for us. 2 Timothy chapter 3, notice verse 15, that from a child you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Paul calls the scriptures holy and he speaks of the ability of the scriptures to produce wisdom in your life. You want to become smarter? You want to become educated? Learn the Bible. Learn the Bible. There are people who have master degrees and PhDs and other types of degrees from a trade school or whatever kind of diploma place they've gone through, and they still don't know who God is. Without knowledge of the king, they're still in ignorance. Or as Paul says, in darkness, the eyes of their understanding being darkened. But the person who takes the time to read the Holy Scriptures will find that the wisdom of God will make them strong. Yeah, if you want to be rescued out of a trial, read this here. Learn what the Scriptures teach. And then you can see in verse 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So don't let anyone teach you that there are things in the Bible that if God could do over, he'd change them. 
Nothing in here he changed. And don't let anybody convince you that there are a few verses in here that ought not be in here. Well, of course, that carnal mind has a lot of verses in here once excised from the book because the carnal man doesn't want a Bible that's going to disturb his heart. And there are things in here that disturb our heart. But the scripture is profitable. That means it's beneficial for you. It's advantageous for you. And the more you read it, the better your life will be. That's what he's saying. Because you can, you can look now at the scripture and see where I can make changes and I can learn from them. For instance, there's a, a man in the Bible who was a king. And when everybody else was out in the middle of a war... This king should have been out there, but he wasn't out there. But one night, he timed it just perfectly where he went out on his rooftop and where his palace was, he could look down on somebody else's rooftop, his neighbor's. And when he looked down there, he saw a lady named Bathsheba and she was bathing. So David didn't just turn and, and, and walk away. He took a second glance, then he took a third glance, and then he stayed there. And then later on, he went and asked one of his workers, who's that beautiful lady over there? It's, it's not like he didn't know who she was. He knew exactly who she was. And, and they told him, and he said, well, bring her, bring her over here. That's, he said, that's Uriah's wife. He said, bring her over here. Well, when you're the king, you can do whatever you want, and who will deny you? They went and got Bathsheba. They said, ma'am, uh, the king would like an audience with you. Well, who's going to deny the king in ancient times? So she went over there, and whatever David said, I have no idea, but I do know this, they, they, they came together physically. Well, once Bathsheba realized that she was with child, then she got word to David, and now David, he knows this is a scandal. So the, the wheels started turning. He, he had to figure out, how can I work this out so that it doesn't look like the baby is mine? So he told his men, bring Uriah, uh, Uriah home from the battle so that he can spend the night with his wife. He's trying to get it timed perfectly because he, 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 he can see it's going to be nine months or so. He's got to get him here quick. And Uriah comes home, but he doesn't even go in the house and sleep with his wife. He slept out on the porch. And, and David said, what in the world is your problem? I brought you in from battle. You, you can spend a night with your wife. Why didn't you do it? He said, how can I sleep in a beautiful home when my men are out there sleeping under the stars and in tents? Well, David said, well, I, I can't believe this. So he, he realized he's in trouble now. So he tells, he tells uh, uh, Joab, uh, one of his generals, he said, look, uh, I, I need you to make sure that you put Uriah in one of the most difficult spots in the battle. Put him up on the front lines where he'll lose his life. And sure enough, the messenger got the note to him and Uriah lost his, his uh, life. And they came back and told him, said he's dead. And Bathsheba found out she was without a husband, and yet she's with child, and she mourned. And after the mourning, David got her and brought her in, and she became David's wife. And David, he expects now to just go on like nothing happened. I mean, he, he, wants, to just keep, he wants to keep his first seat right there in the front pew in the tabernacle. And, and he wants to keep on trying to write his psalms. And, and he wants to act holy in front of the people and squeeze out a tear every now and then, carry a big Hebrew scroll when he goes in there. And, and the people, they, they looked at this man, and I'm sure they thought, don't we have a very pious king? This man, 
Oh, he loves God. I'm so glad we got somebody like him on the throne. But they didn't know him. No, they didn't know him. God did. God knew exactly what it was like. And in 2 Samuel, that's when God tells Nathan, I need you to go have a talk with David because what David has done is wicked. And, and Nathan comes in there to the king. He says, King, I just need to talk to you about something. We've got trouble here in the city, and let me tell you a story. He said there was a man who was uh, <clears throat> very wealthy, and he had a, had a whole lot of livestock. And this man, he ate very well every day. But he said there was another man who was poor, and he didn't have much at all, but he did have one little lamb. And that one lamb he loved, raised him just like a pet around the house. The kids played with him. Everybody had a good time. But the rich man had a visitor, and he wanted to make a feast for the visitor, but he didn't want to take one of his own, so he took the poor man's pet lamb and said he cut him up and fed him, and they all feasted and had a wonderful time. And David pounded his hand and said, I can't believe anybody would be so wicked to not even show pity to a poor man like that. And Nathan put his finger right in the king's face and said, you are the man that did it. David realized that not only had God seen what he did, but now God's calling him on the carpet for it. And the Lord said, didn't I take you from chasing after sheep and put you on the throne? The wives and concubines that Saul had, didn't you end up with them? Did you really need to go after one man's wife when you had all of this other stuff going on in your life? Didn't I make you wealthy and bless you? said, because of that, the sword is not going to depart from your house. And said, the same way you took that man's wife, somebody is going to take the ladies in your palace and they're going to sleep with them publicly in front of everybody. And that's exactly what happened. David was chased from the throne by his own son Absalom. Absalom's counselor told him to put a tent up on the top of the palace to embarrass his father. And he went in one by one with each one of those ladies. Folks, I'm telling you, there's a lot we can learn from the Bible. What can we learn? Stay out of places you don't need to be in. That's the first thing. Wherever God has given you an assignment or a task, be there and take care of it as God has told you because sometimes opportunity provides you with a chance to sin. And Just like David, every man or woman can be turned away and yield to temptation when it comes. What else can we learn from this story with David? We can learn that God doesn't, God doesn't overlook the, 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 uh, the, the way that people mistreat the poor. God pays attention to that. Yeah, we, we learn from it also that just because you're a person in a position of power, that does not mean that you're going to escape when God's talking to you, let's never forget that the common people or the, or, or the folks living down in the city who weren't in the palace, they had no idea that Nathan came and visited David. And you have no idea what goes on in that White House and the kind of people that God may have speaking to people in positions of authority, letting them know you're going to be judged by God if you don't change what you're doing. There's a lot that goes on behind the scenes that we don't know about. By the time God was done with David... I'm sure David wished he had never strolled on that rooftop at that time. Stories like that in the Bible, the scripture says, 
are profitable for us, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. If we want to know how to live right, read the Bible. If you want to know how to live wrong, read the Bible. If you want to understand what is correct belief, read the Bible. You know the problem with David's doctrine? David's doctrine was, I believe in God, and God's word and his command for me is true, except when I want to do something else. And that's how many people are. I I believe in the Bible so long as what God's word says is in line with what I want to do. But the moment I decide I want to do something different, then I no longer believe in, in, in God. How do you know that's how God interpreted David's actions? Because he said to David, because of what you have done, you have shown you despise me. That's what God said to David. So the person who says, I'll do whatever I want, whenever I want, that person shows they have hatred for God. Because even Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. How do we show our love for the Lord? Through obedience. Yeah, obedience. You can't love God if you won't do what God tells you to do. So the the, the man of God can be perfect, thoroughly, thoroughly furnished throughout his entire life unto all good works. Now, one other verse that I want you to, to see, which is in 2 Timothy 2, the preceding chapter, 2 Timothy 2, notice verse number 15. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's something you have to do. I can't do that for you. You cannot do that for me. You have to study the Bible. And by study, I mean two things. Number one, you need to read it, first of all. You start reading it, and then as you're reading it, read it in small chunks. Take the time to read two or three sentences or verses or even a paragraph, and then afterwards meditate on that paragraph and ask God, what is it that you're trying to show me through this? Yeah. Ask God the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to the things he's trying to show you. When you look at the crucifixion of Jesus, God can, he can speak to you a lot. He can speak to you about self-sacrifice, self-denial, what it means to live close to God. The scriptures are so powerful that the Bible says that we should study to show ourselves approved unto God. But verse 16 tells us what to avoid. Profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. Now, if you listen to some journalists and pundits and theologians and sometimes even pastors talk about scripture, by the time they are done with certain people in the Bible or certain events in the Bible, you don't even believe it anymore. And anything that's going to lead to an increase of unbelief in your life, if it's going to lead to an increase of doubt, it's also going to lead to an increase of ungodliness. Because if you doubt what the scriptures say, you're not going to obey it. And I already told you, if you don't obey it, you're proving that you hate God. You're proving that you despise God's word. 
Once the word comes to us, then we should align ourselves with it and allow that word to order our steps. The scripture says his word is a lamp unto our feet. So as we're walking through this life, it shines a light on the path. We don't always know where we need to go, but the light shows us what's up ahead. If there's an obstacle, if there's a snare, if we're getting too close to the edge of the path, about to get off the road, the light of God's word will do that for you every time. And that goes back to something that Jesus said to the Jewish people when he was talking to them, when he said that the scripture cannot be broken. He reached back to an Old Testament text that they knew, and then he turned it around and applied it to his situation, which teaches us that the Bible isn't just to be used as a historical thing. What does it mean today? How can we use the Bible today? And how can I become a better Christian and move in the power of God and in the anointing of the Holy Spirit? Anybody that wants to learn about faith can learn it from the Bible. If you want to learn about heaven, you can find it in the Bible. If you're interested in learning about communion, you can find it in Scripture. You want to know about the Lord's Prayer, Ten Commandments, the Prophets, it's all in the book. If you're interested in learning about hell, about uh, whether or not people can fall away and renounce their faith. If you're interested in learning about the heart, the mind, the soul, spirit, soul, and body, all of it is in the book. But if you don't take the time to read the book, then the Spirit of God can't bring these things to your remembrance when you need to know them. But Jesus knew it, and Jesus left us an example. And I'm so glad that he did that for you, and he did that for me. Scriptures are holy. The scriptures are true. When I come in contact with ministers that don't believe the book, I don't have to get in a big argument. I just sit there and listen to them because I know what they're saying is going to go in this ear, even if it makes it in there and right on out the other because I'm not going to budge at all on this book being holy and being the inspired word of God. If I'm listening to somebody on television and they say, uh, like I heard one man here recently, he was quoting from some a translation of the Bible, and he taught an entire, uh, entire lesson on how Jesus was depressed. I said, oh my, I wouldn't want to serve a depressed Jesus. But he was. He quoted from that, that particular translation that he had, big, huge church that he pastored. And I told Tiffany, I said, can you imagine serving a depressed Jesus? He is talking about our Lord like he needs to be medicated. I couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe it. Yeah, let's pray. Father, thank you that that your word is true and your word is holy. This is the sure foundation on which we can stand. One thing we do know is that the word's going to say the same thing tomorrow that it says tonight. And we are so happy that that word is a seed. That seed is in our heart. It is bringing forth all kinds of fruit. And we are grateful for the mighty manifestation of it in these last days. We love you, we honor you, and we praise you. In Jesus' mighty name, and everyone said, amen, amen, amen.